So here we are, episode two. I never really decide, I don't know, I've said this before, if I'm going to cover a two-parter in one episode or two. But I felt like part two here really was distinct enough that I had to cover it separate. As an aside, I do really like the directing in this episode. I know that goes without saying, but let's just say that I'm really a fan of Jonathan Frakes directing and leave it at that. So, another couple weird little things about this episode. This is actually the very last time we ever see Admiral Necheyev. <laughs> Isn't that a weird thought? It's especially amusing, considering the fact that we don't actually see her in this episode, but you get my point. It was all a dream, oh my god. I'm going to cover the two parts of this episode separately. So let's talk about the dream first, the simulation. First of all, one of the things I have to applaud the Dominion in this one is their uh, commitment to making this dream scenario thing as believable as possible. They have a situation in which at least two of the people in this sim were in basically barely survivable conditions in a pod for six days before they finally got to the point where they started interacting with the other members of the simulation. That's commitment, and rather amusing and impressive in its own right. I also have to admit, they spend an inordinate amount of effort on making everything as believable and realistic as possible. They never really explain how they manage this, so the implication is either that they can just pull this stuff from your own brain, or, and I like this idea much better, that their intel is just that good. Functionally, this is a holodeck episode, at least half of a holodeck episode. Although time-wise, more time is actually spent on the holodeck than the Odo plot, which is part of why I think people are so upset about that. I'll cover that in a moment. Uh, and by a moment, I mean several minutes from now. So, basically, what I'm trying to say is that a holodeck is only going to be as accurate as the information you put into it to, to determine the heuristics that are necessary in order to portray the characters and portray the perspectives and all that fun stuff. So what I'm trying to say is that I, once again, feel that this is a good way to emphasize how powerful the Dominion is, not because they blew up a ship or because they have super magic abilities, but because they have really, really good intel on the Federation and the DS9 in particular, and I've probably haven't infiltrated for a while. So they show up, and Admiral Tachev's there, and I'm like, oh, we're going to go sign a treaty, and I'm like, <laughs> didn't we just talk about this? The Federation and their... their Belief that they can solve every problem with a treaty. Wasn't that a thing we've already covered with the Cardassians and the Maquis? Anywho. Now, for those of you not aware, Borath was actually a replacement Vorta. He was actually originally supposed to be Eris, the woman from the Gemadar, the episode The Gemadar. I think that would have been so much better. I get it. It's one of the great flaws of doing any kind of live-action work. If you can't get an actor back then you have to write out that role, right? That's that's the end. There's there's very, very few ways around that, even in fiction. So it sucks because I really feel like this episode would have had a lot more power to it if that had been Eris. If he was like, he walks in the room and he's about to meet the founder and it's Eris. It's like, oh, somehow I suppose that shouldn't surprise me, you know? And if she is the one who is basically right there alongside Necheyev, guiding the Federation into his new policy of being the bootlickers of the Dominion. Uh, which I suppose brings me to my next point. <clears throat> the Federation, eh, on the one hand, I'm pretty sure that the whole point, eh, from a fictional writing perspective, was to demonstrate that things were wrong so that the audience would get it, you know, figure out that things were wrong and that this was just a dream, or a holodeck simulation if you prefer. However, 
this is more believable than it probably should be. What's more like the Federation? To say, we insist that the Romulans be included into these talks, or, huh, if we form an, a political alliance with the Dominion and the Cardassians and whoever else, we never get anyone else named, that's going to give us a huge amount of political sway when it comes to dealing with the Romulans, who, I remind you, we're not really on friendly terms with right now. I mean, yeah, we recently got that cloak, but that's about the most friendly thing we've had happen with them in recent memory. The, the two-part of unification was not all that long ago, for a bit of reference. So, I can kind of see the Federation taking this particular ploy. Rather than being more overt, this is them playing at politics, which is what the Feds are good at, so I'm with it. It also isn't all that un, uh, uh, unbelievable. Remember that one of the biggest uh, tools the Federation had used to, to check the Romulans for many years is the Klingons and their alliance with them. Because, I mean, it's, it just makes sense, right? If you have power A, B, and C, and power A and B united, C is going to be a whole lot less likely to poke at, bother, or outright attack A or B, because they're united. I mean, this is just basic political logic, right? So, having unified the Dominion in addition to everything else, well, that kind of lines up neatly, doesn't it? Anywho, <clears throat> so they exclude the Romulans. Garak is very hesitant about the whole thing. He's a simulation, I remind you, which I just find hysterical. And uh, I, I just have a note here. I'm sorry for just kind of skipping through this, but the Quark hologram and the Jake hologram and the Garrick hologram are all just astonishingly in character and well-designed for the whole thing. In fact, I'm actually kind of wondering why they have such an accurate portrayal of Garrick, of all people. Like, where do they get that from? I mention that because one of the fans I've talked to, not one of my fans, a Star Trek fan I've talked to many years ago, posited the whole theory that this was being purely generated by their own thoughts. That they would presume, basically their understanding and knowledge of things would generate the program, if that makes any sense. Thus, the fact that Bashir is in there means that Garak is fully Garak, and thus they actually have interactions with him. Make sense? Anywho. So, the thing I like most about the, uh, the B-plot of everything is that it really feels like they slowly push the envelope. It's the lobster in a hot pail of water thing, right? Okay. We're going to go ahead and agree to very specific terms with the treaty. We're going to go ahead and take a side in a personal conflict... We're going to eject certain people from positions of authority within the region. Notice they never even mention Kira or Odo. That's probably one of the biggest reasons why the simulation kind of ousted itself. No one even brings them up. Anyways. So, <clears throat> um, so we have the fight in Quark's bar. And then we have Eddington becoming more aggressive and more on the side of the Dominion. We have the ability, the, the fact that the Federation are pulling out of the sector entirely, which is funny because they're barely in the sector to begin with, and basically allowing the Dominion to take ownership of the sector. Oh, and then they kill Teruel. I think that was her name. I could, uh, Seska. They kill Romulan Seska. Each of these steps can be argued and debated basically in a vacuum. Probably the only thing that makes this a little unbelievable is the speed with which they push it. I don't know if that's an out-of-character thing, because, you know, they only have 44 minutes of, of runtime, and so they have to squish everything into an episode, or if that is an in-character thing. 
maybe the Dominion really are used to pushing new members or new states or, you know, member states or border states or whatever this quickly. Hi, we're the Dominion. How are things? We're just going to move in. We're going to have peace. Together we'll be have prosperity. Oh, by the way, we're going to be excluding these other guys who are your trading partners. You can't trade with them anymore, just as a heads up. Um, also, uh, oh, oh, one of your people got beat up. We're so sorry about that, but that's just kind of par for the course. You have to leave this entire area now. Um, oh, we killed... No, don't, don't mind that. You know, just, just shove, 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 shove. I really do wonder because, and I'm, I'm, tr I'm gonna try really hard not to give away all the things I know about the Dominion from future works. Or, you know, future episodes, but I have to admit, it wouldn't surprise me at all if the Dominion basically did this on purpose just to establish control. In other words, let me go back to what I was saying earlier. You can't trade with them anymore. Well, why? Because we say you can't. In other words, giving orders to ensure control, in order to, to see how well they take orders. If they don't take orders well, the Jem'Hadar come in. And then you give them orders again. If they do take orders well, no problem. We'll all work, thi we'll work things out, right? Because the Dominion is not unafraid to play at politics. The Dominion is not unafraid to give out bonuses and boons to people who are actually on their side. This is demonstrated. Just food for thought. <clears throat> Anywho, there is this wonderful, wonderful sequence, which I just have to give credits for. It's funny that even when it's not actually Garrick, he just steals every scene he's in. But there's this great bit where he grabs the thing and is like, Ha ha, come along! Yes, yes. Uh, the plan's going wonderfully, don't you think? What plan? Oh, the plan where I pretend to be their friend, and then I shoot you. <laughs> I love that scene. And then, of course, Garrick dies. No, no, Garrick, you were not dead. Um... You have to be an STO still. Come on, man. Don't die. And I love their strategy. They very quickly decide, and it, there's like not even a discussion about it. They just very quickly say amongst each other, we've got to go destroy the wormhole. Like, there's, there's not even a debate. There's not even a, hang on, everyone gather on the meeting. The only way to stop the Dominion is to go. No, everyone's already on board with this idea. And everyone's already like, let's go. Close the wormhole. And the end. And that's their big plan. And that makes perfect sense. It says something for the severity of how they feel this, how badly this failed the situation is. Little side note I like. The idea that Bejar was going to be unifying with the Romulans in order to fight against this new invasion force of the Dominion. Given certain things, I'm not going to comment on that. Again, I'm, I'm going to ignore the future for the moment. But I like the idea that the simulation was basically designed to keep going for a while. Because the whole point was to see how much they'd push back against a foothold. So they probably had the program designed for several more days or weeks or whatever to really see how far this goes. To, sh to basically generate their own opposition to themselves to see how the, the test subject interact with that opposition. Of course, they never got there because they immediately skipped to close the wormhole. Which is interesting, given the future. It's so hard to talk about this episode, which I suppose brings me, of course, to the real problem with this episode, or at least one of the problems. One of the things I've heard most often, I've heard this a lot, is people not liking this episode because it was all a dream. Now, to be clear, the it was all a dream is not just a cliche, but it's a generally, usually badly written cliche, something that people don't do anything good with or well with. And thus, it's got that automatic stigma attached to it. It's possible to have a good, it was all a dream story. You know, real life has shown us this. I'm sure you can name several off the top of your head as well. But 
because of that automatic stigma, they have this problem of having to automatically start at a negative, and it has to be really good to overcompensate for that. And it has been argued by many people uh, over the years that this episode did not do that. Now, all this prelude was a build-up to the fact that I myself was kind of withholding thoughts on this, withholding my own judgment on the matter, until I actually went back through the episode myself. And I have to admit, I kind of agree. Up to a certain point, the dream sequence stuff was actually more interesting than the Odo stuff, which is not good because the whole point of the episode was Odo's personal journey. I also have to admit that there's a certain point at which the dream sequence, the holodeck, just kind of completely lost me. It's like, I'd shoot, and then run, and then kill, and, and, then just, and then this, and then, okay, yeah, no, there's, at this point, there's no way I can believe any of this is actually happening, so I'm just waiting for the reset button to be hit. I feel like they could have done more with that in a more subtle manner, a more nuanced manner. Rather than having the Dominion show up and just be, <laughs> we're the bad guys, and also Admiral Dejev, who is a bad guy, have um, have this be the political thing, like I was talking about earlier. I mean, it's not that out of bounds, is it? Really? I mean, how many times have the Ottoman, or excuse me, the Byzantines used their position as, of power in order to stay the bastion of Christianity against the Ottoman Muslims, right? Right? I mean, that kind of political maneuvering and the Byzantines using that influence in order to influence the rest of Europe is a thing that happened. Right? Anyways. So that brings me to the other side of things. Salome Jens played the female founder, the female changeling, excuse me, is what she's usually referred to as. And I find it amusing because this woman has actually been in Star Trek before, over in TNG. She played one of the Ancient Ones, a.k.a. probably the Preservers, a.k.a. probably the Progenitors. Eh. And something about that amuses me, because there's actually been uh, long-standing theories and uh, ideas surrounding the concept that the Preservers slash Progenitors slash whatever actually had a direct cor uh, correlation to the Changelings. I don't know if that's true or not, I just thought I'd mention it. So Odo finally meets his people. After, after basically two seasons of Odo's character arc being the outsider, he is now once again with his people. Now, Renée Bergenois, I didn't mention this last episode, but Renée Bergenois was very concerned about this being a thing. He was like, guys, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want to end my story arc. Ah, I found my people. And, his, and, and the writer's like, no, no, don't worry. You're going to hate them. And, and Renée Bergenois was like, huh. I kind of like that idea. It's a nice twist on the on the the standard flow, and it makes sure that his character arc continues. In fact, this will continue to be a plot arc for um for a very very long period of time, relatively speaking. I also have to admit I like that it forces him to be a different type of outsider, not an outsider who is. Basically, he was an outsider by choice. And then he was an outsider by nature, and now he is once again being forced to be an outsider by choice to go back to something where he feels like he actually belongs. Basically, he has, he has shifted what he is the outsider of in the course of this episode, and I do like that. I also like how Kira is with him there for basically every step of the journey, helping him to feel, helping him to work through this. She is very supportive and very helpful, this whole thing, despite the fact that she is in very dangerous, dire circumstances and deathly afraid of what might have happened to her friends and comrades. But despite that all, she is legitimately and genuinely happy for Odo. That speaks a lot for the friendship between the two, I gotta say, and, it, and I do like that inclusion. 
I think uh, pairing her with Oda was a very, very uh, correct decision for this. So I'm going to point out a couple of quotes, and I just want you to have them in the back of your mind for the future things we learn about the, the Dominion and the Founders, because I'm going to have a big discussion about the Founders several times, actually. I haven't decided exactly when I'm going to have those discussions, but a lot of that is established right here. And I quote, To become a thing is to know a thing. And yet, it's already shown in this very episode that the Founders do not understand solids. And that will be a recurring trend in the future. Uh, the, the Founders send out basically infants of their own kind out into the galaxy. Now, there's a certain brilliance to that. How better could you understand what other people are like by how they interact with something that's so helpless? And yet there's also such an inherent danger in that that I'm astonished they're willing to do that without some kind of checks and balances. Remember, one of the core-centric principles of the Founders, which we do learn in this very episode, is that Founder life equals greater than all other things. That nothing is more important than a Founder, or a Founder's individual life or entity or whatever. So the fact that they're so willing to risk those babies is something unusual to me. Odo... Let me give quick credit to Renea Bergenois. I already gave credit to Nana Visitor for doing an excellent job as Kira. I want to give credit to Renea Bergenois because he manages to portray himself in, perfectly, basically. And again, I think a lot of credit to this also lands on Jonathan Frakes because he's a great director. But his initial you know, interrogation, and then his hesitance, and then his fear... And then his uncertainty, and then his frustration. Like, I've been waiting for this all my life. This is all there is, right? But then he really tries to stretch with it. And he comes back as the bird. This scene really stuck with me. He, he looks so silly and stupid, and, and the actor had to have felt silly going up there and literally flapping his wings on set. But he manages to get across the exultation in his voice. The idea, because if you think about it, really picture it for a moment. Just do me a favor. Picture being a bird right now. Whoosh, you're in the air, and you're flying through, and you feel the wind under and through your feathers and pushing up against your wings, and as you push your way through, you're just looking all around you and seeing the world. That would be such an interesting and enervating experience for you, wouldn't it? As a human being who's never done that. <laughs> not in that way, not like that. And certainly Odo's never done anything like this as well, right? So you can kind of feel that uh, jubilation that gets across in his tone and his perspective as he talks about this. I'm totally with him on that. And as he's just soaking in this, he turns to Kira and says, I've, you know, and the two of them, you know, I've really loved working with you. I've really loved working with you too. There's a lot of great connection there. And Kira acknowledges that she has to leave without him. And he acknowledges that too. And they're both sad and they'll both miss each other. But there's sort of a great camaraderie and friendship there. And then she mentions, I need your help one last time. Now, this is probably the best part of act, the best bit of acting that Renee Abergenois does in this episode. Because he basically comes down from the clouds into reality. As she describes the situation, Odo suddenly has a problem to solve, a mystery to unravel. And Odo's very good at that, has a mind for it, and enjoys doing that. And you could just, you could almost see, and, and again, credit to the actor, you could almost see his focus just brought down from the clouds and he just becomes this laser pointer on this problem, like, we need to solve this. That scene right there is Odo in a nutshell. For all of his desires and aspirations to be one with his people and to live this grand, glorious life, what he really likes is something a lot more simple and down-to-earth. 
and there's an there's a genuine uh, the word I want to use here is passion for that kind of puzzle solving and justice I think is the two things I would define it as he himself calls it justice and she says no you want order now I myself have commented on that but as we will learn in the future in more Odo centric episodes no it really is justice Odo used to seek only order but then he learned and he grew there's a great line, a great line by the female changeling. Belong to it. Major, the changelings are the dominion. And that is so true. They want control, because what you control cannot hurt you. They want order, because they think in a rather orderly fashion. Very uh, logic without extraneous uh, variables is how I would define it. And... No changeling has ever harmed another, which, again, will be a very important plot point in the future. These three things are all established right here, right at base level. And there's also some interesting dialogue between her and Odo in the end. Someday you will return. Some, maybe someday I'll come to you. And we're willing to wait until the time is right. Earlier on, we learned that they had uh, expected the Federation and Odo to come back centuries from now. That line alone helps to indicate something that we do actually know from future information. The changelings are basically ageless. And they can be destroyed, they can be killed, but they do not age. And they are immeasurably patient. If I might be so bold, I want to add one other little thing. I've always gotten the impression that the Dominion is like 99% run by the Vorta. Now I mention that because, and this is purely impression, but I get the idea that the changelings are just much more satisfied hanging out in their link and letting the Dominion run itself, unless something big happens. Then the wormhole opened up, and that was a big happening, and the changelings started getting involved again and spent basically two years prepping for the entire series of events which happened in the Jem'Hadar and the Search, leading up to this, uh, this point in this episode. And I point that out because, in addition to the other reasons I think that, there's a bit where the female changeling says, Interesting, maybe someday I'll go there with you. The Alpha Quadrant seems very, you know, needing of order. It, she, the way she says that implies to me that it legitimately occurs to her in that moment that maybe she should reach out and directly and personally infiltrate the Alpha Quadrant. That the Dominion really should get more involved in this. Or, to be more accurate, that the changelings should get more involved in this. I like that idea, because it also helps to emphasize one tiny little interesting tidbit for me, that the Dominion finds the Alpha Quadrant scary, and I like that. <laughs> As a final note here, Salome Jens, I really don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right, she's the woman who plays the female, faint changing, I already mentioned that, she really does an excellent job with the role. And she has to carry a significant burden on her shoulders. There's many different villainous characters in DS9. We haven't even met some of them yet. Uh, recurring villainous characters. But it can and has been argued, and I don't think really think this is a spoiler, that she is probably the villain of all of Deep Space Nine. The most central, centric, core villain of the entire series. And she has to carry a lot of that weight in her acting and her presentation. And she comes across in a way that's wonderfully alien. Seriously, look at the way she talks, look at the way she moves. She has very restrained, 
an almost uncertain body language. And she doesn't do a lot with her head unless she's talking to someone who's a subordinate, in which case there's a sort of flow to it because, well, that's something she knows and understands. And her very eyes, she does some interesting things with her eyes, especially blinking. She does a lot of blinking. It's a lot of little details that help add nuance to her performance. I wanted to give praise and credit to that. So we won't see the Vorta again until season four. Can you believe that? And we won't see Necheyev ever again. And now we will really get into the meat of what basically is Deep Space Nine. That'll be an interesting journey, and I hope you'll join me there. And see you next time. <laughs>